podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Jimmy Sinclair was a big-hitting, fast-bowling all-rounder. He represented South Africa in rugby and football, and in 1900, it said he was captured during the Boer War. And that's an important part of this story, as it had only been three years since the conflict ended when England toured South Africa. The Boer War, or I suppose technically the Second Boer War, was a battle between two invading forces for a country, while the local inhabitants weren't thought much about at all. It was essentially a fight over the gold that had been found in parts of South Africa. But the dates of the Boer War are really interesting when it comes to cricket. It started on the 11th of October 1899, and it finished on the 31st of May 1902. England played a test match in South Africa just before the war started in April of 1899, and Australia would tour there again in October of 1902. So if you factor in when the winters were, essentially South Africa played a test series just before and just after the war. But this is just test matches. After Sinclair's supposed escape from capture, he went on to tour England in 1901 while the war was still going on. This angered some people in England, because according to some English people, Sinclair should have been off fighting the Boers and not playing cricket. But on that tour, where South Africa didn't play an official test, he took 79 wickets at 21.49, including two 13-wicket hauls, and WG Grace selected him for his London county side. If you're confused about this, that's fair enough. Jimmy Sinclair was South Africa's first great cricketer. But in England, he was seen as South Africa, and in South Africa, he fought with the English. And his cricket team was more like a domestic team that played under another country's flag. But think about what I said right back at the start. Sinclair was a fast bowling big hitter. Some say he hit the biggest six ever, which is kind of a bit of a trick because the ball ended up on a train that took it to Cape Town. But he was certainly a muscular guy, and when he tried to enter the army, they said he was too big for any of the uniforms they had available to them. And South Africa were terrible until Sinclair arrived. They played their first test in 1888-89, but none of their batters scored an individual 30 until 1895-96. And it was that series where Sinclair scored their first 30 and 40. In 1898-99, he scored their first 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 and 100. His third 100, which was also South Africa's third 100, was in 1902-03. They wouldn't score their fourth one until 05-06, which is the series we're going to be talking about. So while Sinclair might have been seen as British South African, it's all a bit confusing. Sinclair was seen as British South African, but English enough to play alongside W.G. Grace, and even fought his own countrymen. Yet in cricket terms, it's much simpler. Jimmy Sinclair was the type of cricketer that South Africa would produce for generations to come. But in that first test of 1905-06, also the first one against England after the Boer War, England batted first with what was a fairly weak England team. But there was some incredible talent within it, like Jack Crawford, the legendary all-rounder who made 9,400 first-class runs and took 800 wickets. And in that first innings, he looked like he might drag England to a victory alone. But of course, it was Jimmy Sinclair, the original broad-shouldered South African all-rounder that took him. South Africa was not yet a nation, but they were already a cricket team. Welcome to Double Century. This season is about the first time that teams defeat England. Today is South Africa's turn, cricket's third nation, one that was included in Test cricket, at least in part because of a shipping route between Australia and England. This is a thrilling story about Rispin and about how South Africa announced themselves in cricket. It's obvious that South Africa was not a unified country during the Boer War or for most of the hundred years that followed. You could still argue it today. 
But from a cricket perspective, this meant that they weren't choosing their best players. And even if they did, it was from a very tiny talent pool that they had shrunk out of their own ignorance. And in their first 11 tests, South Africa hadn't won any. They had four innings losses in their first six matches. Their greatest moment was their only draw, and it was when a tied and boat-lagged Australian team arrived straight from England and were caught out by the first great performance of the South Africans. And you'll be surprised to know that Jimmy Sinclair had a good game, making a handy 44 in the first innings and taking five wickets in the match. But it was another all-rounder, left-handed and left-armed Charlie Llewellyn, who was mentioned in our series on race on cricket, as he was the first non-white South African player. He scored 90 in the first innings and took a six for making Australia follow on. And he followed up with three more in the second. But Clem Hill made 100 in Australia's second innings and South Africa ran out of time in their chase. But again, Llewellyn was there, unbeaten at the close. And this was one of the two matches that South Africa even had a tiny chance in. The other one was the first test in 1899, again when Llewellyn and Sinclair starred. England bowled out for 145, and in the second innings, Sinclair opened up and made 86, while no one else went past 40. Llewellyn took an early breakthrough as South Africa were well on top, but Plum Warner then made 100, and uh, no one else passed 25, but that gave South Africa a chase of 132. Sinclair fell early, but South Africa were 58 for 2 and then 66 for 6. In the middle of that, Llewellyn fell cheap as well, and they just never recovered. That's two close calls in 12 tests. But there is a caveat to that. The Australian team was the only good one that South Africa had played. England played them with a collection of cricketers who wanted to travel, not full-strength teams. Like in the first South African Test match, England used a player called Charles Coventry. He represented England in both tests. These were his only first-class matches. So the problem for South Africa at this point was that they were being beaten easily in most matches by probably the poorest England cricket team that had ever been put out. Outside of Llewellyn and Sinclair, there just wasn't much of a team there. As I said before, Sinclair had their first 300s, and their only three at this point, and Llewellyn was their third leading scorer. And those same two guys, they were first and second on the wicket-takers list. They had 56 wickets coming into the series against England. They were the team more often than not. But something quite amazing had happened in England that would change South African cricket forever. We covered it in Season 1, on our second episode ever, The Birth of the Bosey. But you can't tell this story about South Africa without bringing it up again. Bernard Bozenkett was a first-class batter who discovered he could spin the ball both ways, mucking around with the ball on a table. What he invented was called the Bosey at the time, but we now call it the Googly or the Wrongen. Even though it was his invention, or at least he was the first bowler who really worked out how to bowl it, and that he would go on to play for England because of it, he never quite mastered it. But he knew enough about it to pass it on to Middlesex teammate Reggie Swartz. He was a young batter who played with Bozinkett a couple of times, including a tour to Philadelphia. Soon after that, Swartz immigrated to South Africa. But when South Africa toured England again in 1904, he met up with Bozinkett again. And this is where Swartz learnt the wrong end. When Swartz got back to South Africa, he taught his Transvaal teammates, Bert Vogler, Aubrey Faulkner and Gordon White, about this new delivery. None of them were really bowlers before, and only one of them would end up with a first-class bowling average above 20. That was White and his was only 20.05. This delivery turned non-bowlers into weapons. Outside of South Africa, no one really knew that four of their bowlers had perfected this delivery. None of them had played a test yet. But England was about to find out as all four of the Transvaal players were chosen for the first test. And this had two side effects. Not only would England have to counter an army of wrist spin, 
But all of those four guys were also once batters. Plus Sinclair and Llewellyn also were all-rounders. Suddenly South Africa had given themselves multiple bowling options and, more importantly, for the first time ever, a long batting lineup. England's team was predictably weak, but it was also Plum Warner's team. None of their players had played against Australia on their previous test. Only Colin Blythe, Schofield Haig and Jack Crawford were thought to be really close to first-team England players. And they got a pretty early shock when the Transvaal team beat them. Despite the fact that around three of the Transvaal players were quite clearly nowhere near first-class level. But Swartz's 5 for 34 certainly ripped apart this England team. And sadly for them, in the first test, they just saw more of the same. England opened up their first innings, and against them, South Africa used two of their wrist spinners. Swartz took the first wicket, and three of the first four. Aubrey Faulkner, one of his Transvaal protégés, took the other one. While it was Swartz's connection with the delivery that changed everything, Aubrey Faulkner would not only become a great leg spinner, but probably the best cricketer South Africa had had for at least 50 years. He remains to this day the only player with over 50 wickets and 1,000 runs to have a batting average over 40 and a bowling average under 30. He made a double century in Australia and took 6 for 17 and 7 for 84 in England. When the ICC used their player rankings to check through history, he was the first player ever to top the batting and bowling charts. He also fought in two wars and started one of the first great cricket coaching schools that produced incredible test and first-class players. Swartz and Faulkner took five wickets. Bert Vogler and Gordon White added three more, meaning that England lost eight wickets to leg spin and Sinclair cleaned up the other two. 184 was England's total, and that seemed like a low score until South Africa only made 91 in reply, with Walter Lees taking 5 for 34, bowling unchanged. Lees was not a first-choice cricketer for England. He would only ever play five tests, but in first-class cricket, he took 1,402 wickets at just over 20. He was a fantastic cricketer, and it certainly showed the difference in depth between the two nations. England made one less than the first innings, ending with 183 in the second. And it looked like they would make a few more before Faulkner ripped through their tail to end with four for 26. All this meant that South Africa needed 284 runs to win. At this point in their history, South Africa had batted 22 times in tests. They had made this many runs once, passing 400 against Australia in that drawn match. But they had been bowled out for 99, 97, 93, 85, 85, 84, 83, 47, 43, 35 and 30 and they had only passed 200 four times. This was not a batting team. Chasing 284 against Lees and Crawford would be seemingly impossible. But there was one major thing in their favour. Fourth innings chases have always been tough in cricket because test pitches degrade. This wasn't a problem for South Africa as they were playing their tests on matting, a surface that had already helped their spinners all the way through the game because the pitch spins consistently on matting. But it also meant that the final innings was easier. But even with that advantage, no one was really expecting South Africa to get there. At 22 for 2, it looked a long way off. At 105 for 6, it was virtually impossible. But remember, this was a deeper batting lineup. Reggie Swartz, who had started as a batter in Middlesex, was batting at number 10. But it was Gordon White, the least used of the leg spinners, who made the runs. In four hours, he made 81, as South Africa used him as an anchor for their chase. He also put a partnership of 121 together with Dave Norse. Born in England, Dave Norse travelled to South Africa as a drummer for the West Riding Regiment in the Boer War. Despite the fact he batted at nine, you'll be shocked to know that he was another all-rounder, someone good enough to make a 300 in first-class cricket and also take a six for 33. And he would play a very long test career, not in matches played, but in years, over 20 for South Africa. And 30 years after this match, he was still playing first-class cricket. 
He would also produce a son, Dudley, who would be South Africa's first consistently great batter. In this match, Dave North supported White until he was dismissed with a score on 226, still over 50 runs from the total. And the two leg-spinning all-rounders, Vogler and Swartz, followed shortly after, meaning that South Africa needed 45 with one wicket in hand. At this point, only one partnership in the match for the South Africans was actually over 50. And joining North at the crease was their captain, Percy Sherwell, another South African making his debut. Sherwell averaged 23 in tests, which for a keeper at that time made him very good. And he would go on to make a test century and had three first-class hundreds as well. He would have a bizarre test batting career. He opened in half of his games, and in the other half he batted between 8 and 11. But these two players inched their way towards his total, and with the crowd getting excited with each added run, Norse hit a three from Albert Ralph, taking his score to 93, but more importantly, tying the scores, and leaving Sherwell on strike. Ralph played well for England in over 13 tests as an all-rounder, and took a staggering 1,897 wickets in first-class cricket, and he only needed one more to draw this test. Instead, he delivered a leg-side full toss. Sherwell hit a boundary and South Africa had won their first test. Plum Warner wrote in his autobiography, Men were shrieking hysterically, some were even crying, and hats and sticks were flying everywhere. It was the biggest 10th wicket partnership to win a test at the time. In fact, it was the biggest 10th wickets partnership to win a test until 1994. It's only in the last few years we've had a couple more passing it, meaning that South Africa, the team with two players, beat England with a chase that seemed beyond them with a 10th wicket partnership that over 100 years later is still the fourth best ever. The thing is that quite clearly there are elements of this that feels fluky. Not to mention that Schofield Haig had been sick and couldn't really bowl in the fourth innings. And you just don't win many tests scoring 91 in the first innings with almost a 100 run deficit. Nor when you need to chase over 300 runs and you've lost more than half your wickets before you get to the halfway point. None of this really made a lot of sense. So you would have expected England to bounce back, but they didn't. In the second test, they lost five wickets for 66 before the tail helped them to get to 148. Sinclair and Faulkner took six between them. South Africa started brilliantly. They were 70 for none before falling to 133 for five and England still had a chance. And that's when Sinclair entered. We don't have an exact strike rate for him, but it's estimated at around 71, which is massively quick for that era. And if that number is true, it means he's still one of the fastest hitters of all time. In this innings, he made 66 with seven boundaries and one six. And when he was out, England were over 100 runs behind. England would get a lead, but when Swartz annihilated their tail, they were only 32 runs ahead. And South Africa won the second test easily. There was no real doubt now, or fluke involved. You could point to the Manning pitchers and the wrong'uns, but South Africa were outplaying England in every way. In the third test, every single South African batter scored in double figures. Norse had 61, and Maitland Hathorn scored 102 in a total of 385. That was South Africa's first non-Sinclair ton. England made 295 in reply, but South Africa kept going. Gordon White, their most underused leggy, made 147 as Norse and Sinclair put on some runs as well. South Africa cruised to 349 for five, meaning that England needed 440, but that was never realistic. This time it wasn't a leg spinner, but their seamer tipped Snook, who took eight for 70, and South Africa had now won three tests and the series. But the fourth test was a very good one. South Africa made 218 to start with, and England followed up with 198. Sinclair and Faulkner combined for eight wickets, but South Africa collapsed to 138 in the third innings, White making 73. England had to chase 159, and they got their six wickets down, with Sinclair taking three. 
Even with the series lost, had England won the last two tests, people might have said that it was still a bit of a fluke. But Sinclair wasn't about to let that happen. He took four wickets to start the final test, and England didn't make many. And South Africa had another even batting performance, with Tipsnook making 60 at 8, and Bert Vogler made 62 at 11, which was the highest score in that innings, which makes it one of 11 times in cricket history that a number 11 has top scored. Those two really took what would have been a par score to a big lead. It meant that England now had to battle to stay in the match. There are times by the end of long series where the bowlers just get tired. And if England had a chance to get on top, this was probably it. Especially as South Africa played the exact same 11 in five straight tests, which has happened only five times in the history of test cricket. So it should have tired their bowlers, but they just had so many. And for this match, it was Dave Norse, who had hardly been used to bowl all series, who came in and took four for 25. England were gone, buying innings. But fittingly, it was Reggie Swartz, the man who had gifted South Africa the wrong end and made their batting so incredibly long, who finished England off. And while this was a weaker England team, there was something nice about that last wicket. It was Plum Warner, who while he wasn't an absolute England great, he was certainly this team's leader and was one of the most respected people in cricket who would end up with almost 30,000 runs in the first class game. But Plum couldn't face the wrong ends, and neither could England. And it wouldn't always be like this. South Africa did well on the next tour of England, but they lost 1-0. They beat England again at home in 09-10, and they won a single test in Adelaide in 10-11. But they then didn't win another series for 20 years. But part of that was because England played them with better sides, and they earned that. But South Africa had never won a series, or even a test, and they destroyed England 4-1. It took a perfect storm of a weaker English team, incredible all-rounders, manning wickets, and the birth of a delivery they weaponized. But sadly for them, the batters started picking their wrong-uns. But while the wrong-uns didn't stay with them, the other thing did. South Africa kept producing broad-shouldered all-rounders. And one way or another, they have ever since. Thanks for listening to Double Century. This podcast was made entirely possible by our supporters at Patreon. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to support us into the future. This show was written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. It was co-written by Max Wiggins, who also did the original research. Additional research and fact-checking was by Abhishek Mukherjee. And our producer is Nick McCorriston. Thank you so much for listening. But if you do like this show, one of the best ways that you can help support us is just simply by sharing it on social media or rating and reviewing it in your favorite podcast apps. If you like my work and want to follow it more, there is a link in the show notes to Linktree, which will show you where I do, I don't know, TikToks and Instagrams and YouTube and Twitter and other podcasts. Double Century is my podcast about the history of the game, but I have another podcast called Red Inca, which is on the current game. Come over and hear us talking about when Faf Duplessis is topless or why T20 cricket is broken. Red Inca can be found where you listen to your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.